Love getting prices that are lower than low on food that's fresher than fresh? Then shop at Kroger. We give you more ways to save on the fresh you love with tools like the Kroger app, where you can find personalized coupons on top of weekly sales, giving you prices that are lower than the everyday low. Kroger, fresh for everyone. It's the big $10 sale. So mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Family. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's mom and dad. For others, roommates who feel like family. And for others, it's your significant other, their golfing buddies, your children, a high school soccer team starting lineup, and oh look, they're all taking you up on the offer to stay for dinner. Really testing the limits of that phrase, the more the merrier. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on home and car insurance. Easier than making three frozen pizzas and assorted frozen veggies into a cohesive meal. Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiaka, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiaka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiaka. Hello, dear visionary friends. Thank you for joining us once again on another exciting adventure into future possibilities. This is Mission Evolution, sharing innovative thoughts and information with today's leading experts, the source of evolutionary insights, concepts, and tools supporting the path to enlightenment. This hour, we'll delve into Earth's resonant frequencies, sacred sites, and the acoustic science of the divine. Ancient sacred sites have long been a curiosity. We've studied the fascinating ge geometry of the structures, observed their alignment with solstices and equinoxes, and pondered the meaning of their placement. But what about their acoustic capabilities? As a young girl, I can still remember listening to a choir singing in Notre Dame Cathedral in France. Never before had music been so impactful. There seemed to be something about the structure that transformed sound into a full-body religious experience. The next time I was exposed to such magic was as a teen, experiencing Gregorian chants sung by the monks of the Abbey of Olenton in Germany. Though those were different structures in separate countries, the experience was the same, like bathing in the divine. With us this hour to explore this mysterious acoustic phenomenon is David Elkington. David is the author of The Ancient Language of Sacred Sound, The Acoustic Science of the Divine. David is an academic and historian specializing in Egyptology and Egypto-Palestinian links. Known for his work on the Jordan-led codices, the earliest known initiatory Christian documents, he's also the co-author of The Case for the Jordan Codices. He's lectured at Oxford and Cambridge Universities and appeared on many television programs, including Forbidden History. Find out more about David on his Facebook page, The Jordan Codices. David, thanks for joining us on Mission Evolution. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. How is it over there on the other side of the pond? Quiet. COVID has kind of uh, taken hold of the, the government's uh, idea of what is safe. And we're kind of like uh, 
in a cage, I think, a gilded yeah. cage, but a cage ho nonetheless. Holding pattern for sure. So would you mind sharing with us what your educational background is? Yeah, I um, spent most of my early life with my, my parents traveling in the Southern Hemisphere through uh, Australia, New Zealand and Polynesia and South America. And when I came back, having been schooled uh, at various schools in Australia, New Zealand and then elsewhere, I actually went to um, art school instead of university to do a degree in fine art. And I did that because I wanted to kind of get a wider sense of the world and where I was at. I'd really no idea precisely what I wanted to go into, but uh, I became a painter for a while. And then uh, unfortunately health issues took their, 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 their toll of me. Um, I have a hereditary disorder of the thyroid gland. And that oddly enough gave me an opportunity to, to change course. And I went then into ancient history, uh, most notably Egyptology. And it's quite interesting because the medical condition I have, which is quite severe, has actually been quite a massive opportunity for me to, to, to tune in and sometimes to, to zone out and discover things that perhaps other people haven't been as fortunate as I have to, to, to come across. So how did you become interested in sacred sites in particular? Ah, uh, this is a very interesting story. Around about uh, 1983, I'd fallen very deeply in love. And then inevitably, I was a very young man. It fell to pieces and I was heartbroken. And late that year, it was Christmas, and I found myself walking through the nave of one of Britain's most amazing Gothic cathedrals, Wells Cathedral in Somerset, which is in the west of England. And I went through the nave and I saw a large door and I opened it and walked up these extraordinary wide and well-trodden stairs that seemed to kind of almost like melted in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the view of history. They were very, very worn indeed. And as I walked up them and around the spiral, I suddenly heard this extraordinary sound of a cathedral choir practicing for the Christmas service. And suddenly I was taken away. I was transported somewhere else. And it was the most astonishing experience I'd ever had. And it was definitely a change of, of, of brainwave pattern, as I came to realize. It changed my entire consciousness and it set me on this quest. I, I wanted to know what had happened because the experience lasted all of 10, 15 minutes. And when I came out of there, I was completely captivated by the by, by the entire experience. I seem to know a lot more within the experience than I did outside it. Um, and that really provoked my, my idea about perhaps these places really are extremely powerful in a way that we, we little realize. Yeah, that we've overlooked, or at least in, in recent history. Would you mind kind of defining what is a sacred site? I mean, we have a lot of them around. What, what does it take to be a sacred site? That's a really good question. The, the, the key point is this. Mankind, or humankind, I should say, evolved with or in tandem with planet Earth. And so, of course, we emerged from the caves, from a, what they call a troglodytic existence. What is the first thing we did? Did we build shopping centers? Did we build malls, schools, banks? No. The first thing we built was the sacred place. And why? I believe it was to stay in touch with Mother Earth, in whose embrace we had actually evolved. So 
the sacred place is a place where there is a particular set of factors. One is generally that they are over fault lines in the earth. They can be major or, or minor. But these, through these fault lines, we have um, seepages of radon gas. We have holy wells and water. And then, of course, as we build these kind of like Faraday cages over them to encapsulate the experience of what we are going to have within them, they bring together all of these factors so that you're almost guaranteed that upon going into them, you actually go into almost like a trance-like state. And rather curious that the threshold of going from the outside to the inside is actually called the entrance or better said as the entrance. That fascinates me because my uh, history with sacred space, sacred sites, has been like yours. I've traveled a lot and this and that. But when I came back to the States um, and started studying uh, with uh, Lakota Elder, uh, I experienced a um, sweat lodge. <laughs> and they're built very specifically on ley lines. And they have um, the doors always facing a particular direction. When he built the structure, he would bless the where the the two um, where the willows would cross in the structure to different stellar systems. And then the, um, the lodge poles as they went into the ground were blessed to the earth. And I could go on and on and on and on. But then within it is, you know, water, air, earth, fire, chanting, drumming. Um, and it absolutely is an altered state of consciousness when you when you work with that. So that would qualify um, an anipi or a sweat lodge as a sacred space by what you're saying. Absolutely. A sacred space can be anything, provided it has the same effect upon brainwave uh, frequencies and therefore allows you to transform your consciousness. And, and this is an actual physical effect, I hasten to add. We're not talking of something here that is uh, an invention, it's a fantasy, it's not something that is unproven. It is very much proven. And, and we're talking here about hard science. So, so tell, tell us about that, David. What what? Um, what uh, tests and studies have been done on the altered brainwaves uh, created by sacred space? Oh, a lot of work by, by a lot of people looking at the way in which certain aspects of the, the brain's hippocampus and the amygdala change in terms of, 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 of the change of rhythms. Uh, I mean, we go into a, a, an altered state of consciousness more or less twice a day uh, because when you come into or go out of sleep, you have to go through an alpha state to get into your, your everyday rhythm of the brain. So, I mean, there's four main rhythms of the brain. There's the, uh, there, there's the delta rhythm, which is 0.5 to 4 hertz or vibrations per second. And then after that, we've got theta waves, which are 4 to 7 vibrations per second. And then the alpha wave frequencies, which are 7 to 13. And of course, the everyday uh, um, frequency of, 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 you know, going to work and making a living of 13 to 30 hertz. So what you're doing literally in coming into and going out of sleep is you're going through that, that transformation from the brain being very slow, going into its dreamlike state, and you're coming out of that into what we call reality. And so in a sense, this is why um, we have that maxim that says, if you have a problem, sleep on it. Because, of course, an alpha state widens your awareness of, of, of who you are and where you are. Instead of being on a narrow focus, as we are in everyday life, in our jobs, in our, in our vocations, suddenly an alpha state connects you to, to other ideas, other potentials, other possibilities and other things. 
Uh, and that, is this, that is, is, is this our creative space as well? Do we go into that space when we're dropping into more, say you're really getting into the zone to write or to paint? Do, do your brainwaves change then? Absolutely. Um, being a writer myself, I have to go into it on a regular basis. And uh, I've managed to achieve that, thank goodness. But uh, there are days when I fail to do so, I hasten to add. But uh, it is an extraordinary thing because suddenly you, 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 you are actually in that space, you're in that zone, and time flies. It's almost as if time doesn't exist. And suddenly you look up and the next thing you know, two, three, four, five hours have gone by. It's that kind of timeless state it kind of conjoins you with the wider aspect of consciousness and its potentials perhaps even beyond us beyond even the planet no doubt um, this whole idea that only we have consciousness seems to me to be a pretty grisly way of viewing life and reality in general i've come to the the, the conclusion now that consciousness is much much wider than than, than we have viewed it in the past um a, a lot of people would term it panpsychism i'm all for that i think there's a lot more to be viewed about this um and i think such a teaching would actually engender a great deal of respect that, that everything is conscious not just us but however we have the ability to widen it when we want so that's an ancient concept is this isn't anything new um, but we've got, kind of gotten away from it in our day-to-day -day staying in beta and looking at our cell phones. What do you think, and we're just about out of time in this segment, but what do you think could be shifted for us as a culture should we start to re-engage with that aspect of ourselves and with all that is? I think that if we started to teach children that everything is conscious, but by no means as conscious as we are, let's say a rock or a stone has 20 millionths of the consciousness we have, if we were to engender that in our young, that would bring about an immediate respect for everything around us. We wouldn't be uh, seeing things as being dead. We're no longer a dead rock third from the sun. We're actually a living, breathing entity living on a living, breathing entity. That would engender a, 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 a slight consciousness shift, but one that would be very major for human history. And I think it's a terribly important one. And it seems like that's the old way of viewing, I mean, ancient, that we have lost and we really are in desperate need of getting back to it at this point, don't you? Uh, yeah, I mean, the great pharaoh Akhenaten, the, the most controversial pharaoh of Egyptian history, actually once said, there is nothing new under the sun. And I have to say, I couldn't agree with him more. <laughs> yes, it's, it's interesting that we have to go backwards to go forwards at this point. Uh, yes, but, but isn't that always the case? It's two steps forward, one step back. Uh, life doesn't go, I, I believe, in a straight line. We do not progress unless we understand the past and the present in order to step forward into the future. And surely going into an altered state of consciousness is to give yourself a vision of that future. Absolutely. Well, it is time for that pause. David and I will return after this important message. So don't go away. This is Mission Evolution, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com.
Looking for a way to make quick cash? Making cash with DoorDash is super easy, guys. I love driving around my town, and now I can do that and get paid. Not to mention the sign-up process was so easy. Download the DoorDash driver app today to get started. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Hello again. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org, dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. To our faithful and thoughtful audience, we really value your opinion. We'd love to hear from you. What do you think about Sacred Sound? This in from a member of our audience regarding the episode entitled, Finding Your Bliss, the Care and Maintenance of the Human Brain. From J.J., Until listening to this program, I had no idea how negative my thoughts had become and their effect on my health. Thanks for having Dr. Church on your show. Thanks for your input, JJ. I, too, love Dr. Church's viewpoints on the power we have to change our world by changing our outlook. Curious, dear audience? Visit our archives at missionevolution.org. Listen to the episode entitled Finding Your Bliss, The Care and Maintenance of the Human Brain, and let us know what you think. Email me at infoadmissionevolution.org and give me your thoughts and questions so that we can all share them on the next show. With us this hour discussing acoustic science is David Elkington. Find out more about David on his Facebook page, The Jordan Codices. David, we were starting to get into some really fun stuff. I you know, went to so many different directions we could go. But you were talking about the um, ley lines and kind of going into the earth and the gases that were there and that sort of thing. And there's this myth about the Oracle of Delphi. Are you familiar with that? Very much so, yes. Um, Much like the Oracle at Kumai, oddly enough. Um, And and, I mean, the central aspect of that, uh, that, that extraordinary place, of course, is radon gas. It's absolutely laced with it. You can't help but get high when you're there. Uh, and so you, you can see, in a sense, why the oracle could deliver the oracle she did. She was absolutely permanently in that state. And um, ancient sources talk about the preserved bodies of the oracles as they took over from one another. Uh, they talk about them as being almost purely mummified. And, and you can see it because the amount of gas there, um, they hardly fed on anything that was just nutrition through the gas they were so totally in the other realm um and i can see that that's obviously what what led them their sanctity um and so of course if you would then look at, at other sites around the world new grange you look at the great pyramid you you even find uh, particular houses and churches in the uk particularly on dartmoor very loaded with radon gas so of course these places are always going to be associated as being mystical sites and not only that but they're also um associated quite often with holy wells and of course that water in itself is also laced with radon to the degree that Um, Some experiments by the East Anglian Water Authority some years ago demonstrated that when bacilli were actually introduced into tap water and river water, it thrived and it grew. But when introduced into holy water, water from holy wells, it died. 
So ancient humanity knew these places well and knew that holy worlds were holy and very healing for a specific reason. Um, and it seems almost as if ancient humanity was able to sense these things. Uh, whereas the tragedy of today is that we need to test and to analyze and not to trust that instinct anymore. Well, you know, animals have gotten along since the beginning of time by following their instincts, drinking out of a foul uh, water hole. They just don't do it um, because their instincts or their noses or all the above tell them this isn't good for me, but that is. And we have gotten away from that great to our great detriment. Can realigning ourselves with the planet through these um, sacred sites or creating sacred sites ourselves help us re-engage with our natural abilities? I think that's why people want to go to church and uh, to go to cathedrals. It's not just to to actually, um, as it were, speak to God in the everyday sense that they think they are. I believe that people are attracted to these places because of the the powers and the energies that they contain, and it gets to them. And when you've got the ritual in full prog progression um, and and everybody's of, of of a piece with it, suddenly you seem to get this kind of idea of a unified consciousness. Uh, and it's not just in the Christian religion, it's in other religions as well. We look at the Hindus, we just look at the ancient Maya. Uh, it's right the way across the planet. So now we've got some very interesting elements all coming together, most of which have been overlooked for a long time when we're talking about sacred sites. So we've talked about where they sit on the planet, their uh, alignment with, with uh, ley lines, radon gas, is that right, radon? Yep, absolutely. Okay. Radon gas, um, sound, water, air, earth, fire, and ceremony. So you bring all of these together, and what happens? Well, you have all of the components of an ancient technology, um, and the technology is subjective. In other words, we are the technology. Uh, and now it's, it's my thesis in the book is that all of these places are associated with the myth of the hero. The hero is born of the Earth Mother, he's born of the Sky Father, and is the arbiter almost between humanity and that which we call divine. And it's my um, um, thesis, and I have a lot of evidence to back it up, that the hero always in these legends brings the, 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 the sound into pictorial form in the form of script. So in other words, the alphabet, hieroglyphics, you name it, all came from the sacred site. So in other words, your ability to write a note to the milkman is all thanks to the sacred place. And so therefore, these place should, places should be lauded because they are actually um, the manifestation of what I call an environmental response mechanism, which is language itself. And I don't believe that script was an invention by the human uh, species, um, you know, of, 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 putting, of putting sound into words. I believe it was a response mechanism to, 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 the, to the Earth Mother. So we're the instruments. So there's, there's been these studies done, uh, two of them I can think of, uh, Chaladni, symbols do you are you familiar yes, with him that's yes. right. so, yeah. So, yeah yeah so for our, for our audience this was an, a musician and a and a researcher and he would sound notes on a plate of sand with a with a cello bow and uh, created in sand these 
consistent symbols that would be reproduced every time that note was reproduced and hold as long as he held the note, only to fall into chaos when he changed the note and bring up another totally different um, structure or, or symbol. How does that relate to what you're talking about? Well, my good friend John Reed uh, has um, developed a, a, a machine called the Cymoscope, and it's a development of his own cymatic research, which is also looking at the um, ability to pictorialize sound at sacred sites. And one of the, the key um, aspects of this is that wherever we've gone with this, be it Christian sites, Celtic sites, or even uh, ancient Egyptian sites, wherever we have actually developed those sounds of those monuments, we've always come up with the script that is unique to those civilizations. So That is so, fascinating, isn't it? Well, it, it absolutely is, because, of course, what we're looking at here is these places are places of legend where the hero is said to have brought this. And, of course, there's no greater example of this than, than in the beginning of uh, John's Gospel, which says... In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And where do you find a, a Word? You find it in a book, um, and you find it on a piece of paper, but the Word would have come from the site via so the, the hero. So the Word is the resonance coming from Absolutely. a combination of heaven and earth, and then being translated by our, our physical beings? Yes, and of course, the Latin for one word is universe. Mm, amazing. And I'm, I've, I've, I understand that Celtic knots actually originated through the sound that's coming through the Celtic sacred sites. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, and we had plenty of those at various sites we went to here in the UK. Um, profoundly beautiful things. But when you see them actually wrought in such extraordinary illuminations as the Book of Kells, you suddenly see that actually these people were obviously picking up um, the the feel of the place, the numinosity of the place, through what they were feeling deep inside themselves. Uh, and I can't think of anything more meditative than being in a lonely monastery about 15 to 1800 years ago with a piece of parchment, a quill, and you're looking out of the window, you're in a monastery, and you're thinking, right, it's time to connect. Mm. And so um, this is the origin of channeling, is it not? I suspect it is, yes. I mean, um, for me, it's a case of, of meditation. As you said earlier on, we have to meditate to, to begin our work, if, particularly if you're in the creative field. And so, of course, in doing that, we are purposefully altering our brainwave patterns. Um, whatever comes through that, whatever comes through the sense of creativity, of course, is determined by the kind of state you go into uh, and the kind of state that in many cases you're reluctant to come out of. Um, I think of Samuel Taylor Coleridge here, uh, writing his great, great poem, Xanadu, um, who had his trance broken by the postman knocking at the door. And there, there was one of the greatest poems ever written and it stopped halfway through because he just could not get back into the state to reconnect. Amazing, isn't it? And I'd like to bring up something that might seem remote, but I don't think so. And that's crop circles. Again, I, I don't see why they also shouldn't be resonant patterns. And again, they, they fit the scheme. Um, I haven't written about them in this in this present book. 
But looking at them, um, you can see that there's definitely something to them that's acoustical. And also the, the good work done by a lot of seriologists um, investigating the Pythagorean and Platonic aspect of crop circles is deeply fascinating. And of course, always it turns back to acoustics. Very fascinating. Do you personally believe that the crop circles are coming so much at this time because there is information that we need that we've been ignoring? Uh, there's much more to the universe and to, to the world around us than we than we know. And I think we the, the, the problem, my main criticism of science, and I believe me, I've got a hell of a lot of respect for science, of course, but we do seem to use our logic to limit our view of the world rather than to expand it. And and how often have we heard in the past century and a half that we've discovered all there is to know? It, it's simply not true. Uh, and therefore, we should open ourselves up to, to, to the reception of more knowledge. And, and in that, I give you an example. Um, uh, the, the development or the discovery of the periodic table by the chemist Medvedev um, he actually went into a, a, an altered state himself and fell asleep. And when he came out of his, his, his sleep the morning after, having slept very heavily, and obviously in a very, very deep sleep indeed, i.e. an altered state, there was the periodic table in his head, fully formed. All he had to do was write it down. So he was in receipt of something that changed humanity. And isn't that always the way it happens? You just have to be available, don't you? So does it run on your intention and bottom line? So say if you're like he was, someone that wanted to be available to bring through something that would help the world, does that help you be more receptive to this information to go into these states? I think if you're subconsciously receptive, I think that's very true. You have to kind of bypass the egotistical aspect. You have to bypass the, the you know, what you think is you to go to the real you. So you have to go deep, deep within. And once you, you learn to turn on that switch of reception, then really magical things can begin to happen. I had um, a Celtic teacher, and one of the things that um, I had several Celtic teachers, and they both had the same thing in common in their old teachings, was that it's the mystery the hind leading the hunter into the into the woods where he has this mystical, magical experience. It's the mystery that leads us, not the knowledge. Uh, would you speak to that just briefly? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, the Earth Mother is called wisdom in many traditions, and the son of wisdom is knowledge. But, you know, knowledge isn't so much what we call empirical knowledge today. I believe it's knowledge that, we, that comes naturally to us. And it's our ability to understand ourselves in tandem with that reception of knowledge that gives you the genuine mystery. And let's not forget that mystery is related to myth. A myth in its original Greek literally means that which is spoken. Well, it is time for a station break. David and I will return to our discussion shortly. You stay right there. This is Mission Evolution, coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution. Did you know our entire leading-edge, information-packed past episode collection is available to listen or download with our compliments? 
visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. To find out more about me, Gwilda and the other things I offer, visit www.findyourpathhome.com. Our special guest this hour is David Elkington. We're speaking about resonant frequencies and sacred sites. David, we were getting into some, some really fun stuff, and I want to back up just a little bit because we were talking about how uh, a person's conscious and unconscious um, intent and, you know, just basic substance of a person can affect their ability to tap into and channel information accurately. The Oracle of Delphi was always, as I as I learned, um, a woman that had had children, had lived a good life, had been a good good homemaker had a, a lot of substance before she signed on as the Oracle. Did that have something to do with her ability, each one of these ladies, because the Oracle was a position, not a particular person. Did that have something to do with these women um, being able to channel to the degree that they did? And what can we learn from that for modern people? I think that generally it was the milieu in which they lived that, that led them to, 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 to be, become Oracles, as it were. I mean, today we separate the idea of an everyday logical consciousness with um, psychic ability. And of course, you know, science is very, very skeptical of such things. But of course, the further we go back in history, uh, particularly to the Greek classical period, these two things hadn't yet become sundered. So in a sense, religion hadn't yet become sundered from science. So you didn't have the two as separate subjects. They were more or less one or the same. And that's why I said earlier on that actually the the technology was us. So in a sense, we seem to have a greater understanding of, of ourselves in that regard than perhaps we do today, because, of course, we are naturally sceptical. Um, and, of course, at Delphi, as you say, it was everyday, run-of-the-mill women who basically had had families, lived happy lives, and wanted to share their abilities and heighten their abilities at these places with other people. Um, but from what I've read of the Oracle of Kumai in, uh, in modern-day Italy, that was not the case. The Oracle was actually a very, very scary Haradan who would terrify the living daylights out of uh, ordinary people all the way up to Roman emperors. Um, Robert Graves talks about it in, in, at great length in his uh, great novels, I, Claudius, and Claudius the God. Recommended reading. So let's change gears a little bit. Um, there, another thing that's been, um, I've noted, many other people have noted, is when I'm being a, when I'd be in a sick room working with someone getting ready to cross and helping them cross, there are times I'd close my eyes and I would see symbols behind my eyelids, just see all these symbols. And I started noticing that it would change with the nationality of the individual. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, that's really fascinating, actually. You're obviously keying into something that is obviously emanating from the person involved. Um, and I find that very, very interesting indeed. There is actually an aspect of the brain where there are uh, a little cellular structures called neurides that we know have taken the shape of the, the Western alphabetic script, but only in Western people whereas elsewhere it has taken uh, other forms, which is very curious. So, so oddly enough, 
sound is actually having a physical effect upon the very makeup of our brains. So I wonder somehow if people radiate, radiate this out and in the crossover of our energy fields, which are very, very wide indeed. I mean, our energy fields can go out about 10 foot in all directions. Um, I talk about this in the book. Um, in that crossover, when you encounter other people, you're bound to collect data from them on a, on a supremely subconscious level which I do believe can be picked up. I, and you find the same with heart transplant patients too. Um, they pick up the memories of the person uh, who had the heart before them. And often people are kind of left wondering, well, why am I having memories with which I'm unfamiliar? And of course, they're picking it up from the organ that's been transplanted. So it's not a, an uncommon phenomenon. So if we were to um, travel more widely expose ourselves to more cultures, particularly as we're young, wouldn't that broaden our horizons to this language? Very much so. It's what happened to me. As soon as I had my experience, I was off. I thought, right, got to find out more about this. And I went to as many places as possible to, to widen my idea, not only of what this thing was, but also to widen my idea of what I was in tandem with it. Um, because obviously you're a young person, you're new to life, you want to learn about yourself, what you're capable of, and you also want to see what your limits are as well. And it's terribly important. And this also was an aspect of ancient rituals in places like the Long Barrows of Europe, in the Eleusinian Mysteries in Greece, and probably within the Great Pyramid in Egypt. So... This is bringing us back to uh, how does this interface? Now, genetics, our DNA, is a code, and the symbols are codes, and codes are frequency, and frequency at some place, at some level, uh, expresses a sound. So how does our actual genetics play in here as in recording and emanating these symbols and sounds? Well, of course, DNA is a coil. And anything that's uh, in, a, in a coil form is going to actually generate and receive and, and give out energy. So, of course, DNA as a whole is acting as, a, as an energy transmitter. So, of course, all DNA together is going to create you, this energetic person, this, this antenna who is soaking up that which is coming in and as well as, as, well as giving out um, and this is what I find so fascinating about the, 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 the sacred place. You know, one of the great miracles of Western European medieval culture was that in around about 1130 onwards, there was this massive, massive building program of the Gothic cathedrals. And the great mystery about them is, A, the economics. How could we afford that? They, they were, we built hundreds of the things, as well as local parish churches throughout the whole of Western, Eastern and Central Europe. And we built these because we were motivated to do so. And, and what's curious is that in the light of these things having finally been constructed, these great books in stone, as St. Bernard of Clairvaux labelled them, within a 100, 200 years or so, we had the birth of the Renaissance, the rebirth of Europe, as, it, as, as the word means in, in, in Latin. And then, of course, it led to the age of enlightenment, the age of, of, of reason. And we, again, we give ourselves the credit, which is only right, but we need to give the sacred place the credit too, because... Imagine being a poor medieval peasant. Um, you have no computer, no telephone. You work plowing the fields every day of the week. 
it's a very very tough hard life and yet you you are obliged to go to church and as soon as you enter the this place it's no longer a, a hovel it's no longer a dark place where you might light a candle and say the odd prayer you're suddenly entering into a palace of the unconscious you see these wonderful stained glass windows you see color shining through them you see the sound you hear the sound you you hear human voices in a way you've never heard them before that must have been the most incredibly enlightening experience for these people it must have really stunned them and stunned their imagination and more importantly it must have woken them up so now we're adding some more elements to sacred sites. We're adding scent and light, color. Isn't that Absolutely. interesting? It is. It's interesting. And also, you know, sometimes when you use, um, when you're doing a, a sound experiment um, in places like this, you can use smoke and smoke will take uh, particular forms. Um, but the smoke with the, the molecule large enough to be able to get really well-defined patterns believe it or not, is frankincense. It has, it has a different quality. Is it because it, uh, the essence has a particular frequency that's more responsive to the, um, to the symbols? It's much more responsive. And I mean, of course, you know, gold, frankincense and myrrh were, were taken to the, the Holy Child uh, as, as they are every year at Christmas time. We, 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 we read these passages from the Gospels. And yet we're looking here ancient holy texts that contain aspects of the science that we're looking at today. So it's another way of looking at these texts, another way of seeing that these people knew what they were writing about. And that's fascinating. So let's go back to um, genetics and us as being the technology. So, so far, all the things that we've listed are things that interface with our physical body to uh, create a, an altered state of consciousness. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's exactly what's, what's going on. And, you know, I think in terms of genetics, um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot yet that we, we need to investigate and see. Instead of actually taking apart the genome, perhaps we need to look at it as a whole and look at it relative to other things, because it's quite interesting how the very small reflects the very large. Um, you know, we invented coils and transmitters for radios and TV sets and things, and yet we go down to the micro scale and we see that our own DNA is the same, is the same form. There are many of those um, synchronicities throughout nature, and it seems to me that humanity can't really create a new. All we can do is to reflect nature herself. Isn't that beautiful? So there's this myth that um, at one point uh, God sent the nations to four, four corners and they were each sent with a bit of the truth, with their, their portion of the truth, and that the truth wouldn't be known until these nations came back together and brought what they had preserved. And that's supposed to be happening during these times. Have you heard that myth and would you translate it for us? I haven't heard the myth. I, I've, I've, I'm unfamiliar with that entirely. But mm. it would be interesting to see the co-joining of of those those four elements of the truth. Because I, I think of, of Christ before Pilate when Pilate said, "What is truth?" and he had no reply. Because of course, it's a very again, it's a very subjective thing. There's no such thing really as objective truth because your idea of the truth would be different from my own. But when you go inside and your consciousness can unite with others on that silent 
sound level, then you can see the truth. So perhaps that's what it's talking about is is the idea of going beyond our own cultural conditioning, looking at the great masters of religion, be it Christ, the Buddha, the prophets, uh, and the various other saints of other religions like Hinduism and Buddhism, etc. Going beyond those to witness the truth that all of these fine people were actually speaking of. And I, I'm wondering, you know, those symbols that are different from one culture to the other, if those aren't part of the container that is being held in the four corners, like the hieroglyphics and the um, Celtic knots, et cetera, et cetera. Wherever I've gone across the world, I've always seen more or less the same symbols. I mean, the cross is one of them. Um, the cross is very interesting because, of course, what you're looking at in terms of a cross is the symbol of, of of the static sun. You're seeing it, as it were, in stillness. The opposite of that is the cross in revolution, which, of course, is the spiral. And, of course, the spiral is associated with the labyrinth. It's associated with the lady, with ongoing, moving wisdom. So, again, you have this this, this technology in symbolism that expresses what actually happens at the sacred site. And our DNA is in a spiral formation. Fascinating. Exactly. And, and, and that's, again, why we seem to reflect not just the world outside us and beyond us, but the world deep within. There's one symbol that is almost um, universal, uh, found in caves in uh, Australia, where that, that um, continent was supposed to have been isolated for however long, and found in the cave dwellings here in, in this country, in the United States, and I know it's in the UK as well, and that is the spiral. Why do you think it is the one that really holds true? I think you have to look at the idea of pilgrimage when you look at that. Um, it- if we look at Mecca every year on the Hegira, uh, you see the pilgrims actually circumnavigating the the Kaaba, and they're doing so in a slow spiral as they approach the the corner of the Kaaba and then kiss the the meteorite in its corner. You have well, the same. Going, across- we're going. We're going to have to look at pilgrimage on the other side of a commercial break. It is time for another quick pause. David and I will be back to continue our discussion shortly. This is Mission Evolution coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I love to hear from our audience. Your thoughts are very important to me. To suggest a topic or guest that you think would be of interest, email us at info at missionevolution.org. To find out more about me, Gwilda my school, and the other evolutionary tools we offer, visit www.findyourpathhome.com. This hour, we're sharing thoughts with David Elkington. To find out more about David, Find his Facebook page, The Jordan Codices. We were getting into um, pilgrimages. Uh, would you tell us how this all, how pilgrimages uh, line up with what we've been talking about for the last three segments? 
Yes, I, and I was talking about the pilgrimage at Mecca that happens once a year, but you've got the same phenomenon in in Western Ireland at a, a place called Croach Patrick or the Hill of St. Patrick. You have to actually circumnavigate the mount and gradually you rise up it. Some people actually are so keen they do it on their knees. And of course, as you get to the to the top, there's a there's a there's a little um, hillock on top of it, and you, you of course you you kiss the stone. And of course, this idea of doing the spiral, slow approach to a to a place is all designed to 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 alter your your the frequency of your consciousness, going from A to B, going from from uh, you know along a straight path directly into a church isn't going to get you into the state you need to to be in order to actually access the technology of that place you need to 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 do a pilgrimage of it you need to get into the whole idea of journeying towards it which can be a journey like the uh, camino of of hundreds of miles across northern spain or it could be just walking in that spiral and gradually gradually the mind switches from one state to another as you enter and finally gain entrance it's it's a it's a fascinating thing i find you know this so exciting because so many things are coming together for me um in different traditions so say for instance the uh again let's go back to the anipi lodge the lakota sweat lodge there you have a particular direction that you walk it's, it's clockwise uh depending on your ceremony and you have to circle the anipi before you go in it in a clockwise direction then when you enter the anipi you move clockwise inside the anipi lodge until you find your place to sit down when you're done you once again get up and even if you're right next to the door you have to go all the way around to exit it's the same principle isn't it it is and, and now take that onto a cosmic level we have a planet that is spinning. And of course, as it spins, it goes around the sun and our sun goes around the, 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 the solar system. And this part of the solar system spins around the, the, the galactic center and the galaxy itself is moving around some kind of central aspect. So what you're looking at really is the approach to the point of stillness, the approach to the point of nothing, which is to say no thing. And of course, that's the impossible thought. How can there be no thing? How can there be total silence? Because it's actually the point of stillness. I don't know if you've ever posed for an artist, for a painter, and that you've sat it's there. It's painful. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I did it recently um, for a class, and I sat there, and uh, my friend, who's a, a, a world-renowned portrait painter, said, can you keep really, really still? And I, I found, obviously, you relax into the pose and you gradually shut down and suddenly you can't feel your fingers, you can't feel your toes and gradually you begin to move upwards. And finally, there's just one thing left, your eyes. Because, of course, your eyes have so many muscles around the, around the rim of it that, of course, they move about 40,000 times a second. Now, try and slow them down. And what happens? is that your your image of what you think is reality begins quietly and slowly to fade away to nothing you just see whiteness it's a it's an extraordinary concept to think that finally 
the illusion of the world around us is right there because it's the point of stillness. And that's what we are aiming for in a change of consciousness. From that point, we can access everything. And if we're not in that point, we can't hardly access anything that isn't colored by our hopes for the future or experience from the past. I think that's absolutely the case. And at that point of stillness, you are actually reaching the point where past, present and future begin to merge. And of course, you're in the homeland of the hero because the hero is the, the figure who draws together past, present and future into a unified sense of now. And I, I find it very interesting because the hero's name always means I am. Uh, we have that with the, the the name of the Hebrew god Yahweh. His, his name means I am who I am. And you find that in a number of other religions as well. But a very curious and more obvious um, example of that is Jesus. Jesus, oddly enough, approximates the French uh, um, verb I am, which is je suis. <laughs> it's not too far from the modern spelling of the name Jesus. So again, it has its resonance. Just amazing. I'd like to take this just a little different direction, but you did bring it up. When we're talking about how everything is spinning out there, right? Nothing's holding still. Um, there's circles within circles, wheels within wheels, if you will. And the universe is always changing and our position, relative positioning in it is always changing. That being the case, and these ancient sacred sites being built on ley lines and places where the um, uh, equinox uh, sun would shine in or the solstice sun would shine in, do they become obsolete? Do they come out of balance? Do they come out of alignment? I think they can do, but I still think they perform the same function, which is mainly as a kind of a Faraday cage for the energies emitting from the earth. I think it then becomes up to the individual to, to realign themselves with the help of the sacred place. I think that's very, very much the, the case. Um, and of course, we've seen that as history moves on, um, the alignment with uh, pole stars changes and so on and so forth. But it doesn't actually take away from the power of place, which you will feel all the same. Um, I think the great tragedy, in a sense, is that when we look back at history, we look at the pyramids, we look at the stone circles. What we're looking at are the ruins of the past. We cannot visualize these places as they once were, which was living, breathing entities. And they were full of song and dance and of people laughing and joyously enjoying life, particularly the Egyptians. And these places always had song at them. They always had choirs singing, which were re-energizing these places. So when you go to the pyramids, when you go to the great cathedrals, when you go to the stone circles, don't see them as being dead places that once were. Look at them as living, breathing places that are now. And then once you begin to understand the idea of song and dance, you'll begin to understand that that spiral motion is taking place for real. There's some huge uh, physiological changes that happen in an individual when we sing and dance. And I don't mean, you know, some of the modern music now so much as the ancient dance, the spiral, the, the ones that danced in the spirals, the, that spun. Um, 
uh, dervish, I believe, is what that was. Um, yes, so, the dervishes, yeah. exactly that. Yeah. Yes, they're yeah. Sufi Muslims, they are. Um, but I can give you a, a more recent example of, of how um, majestical and divine music is, and it's from, from, the, from the, the Blessed Mozart. Um, mm. I know a lady who had a, a class of rowdy schoolchildren, and I think they were about 8 to, to 13 years of age, and she didn't quite really know how to control their quite extraordinary frenetic energy. I mean, you know what children are like. They, they can't help themselves, bless them. But one day she was kind of tearing her hair out a bit, so she took a drive and she went to the local garage and she saw some, some CDs there on the rack and she thought, hmm, this looks interesting, and pulled out Mozart's clarinet quintet. Took it back to the classroom, put it on, put her feet up on her desk and just closed her eyes and listened to the beauty of the music. Only to open her eyes about 20 minutes later to find her entire class assembled quietly at their desks. The mm. music itself had had that extraordinary quality of allowing the children's minds to be still and allowing them to become more thoughtful and creative. And how much was her alignment with that music and her being the technology, putting that frequency into the room for the children to draw on as well? I think it was paramount. I think that she was unconsciously acting like a priestess, if you like, for her children, who were then suddenly completely amazed at, their, at what was going on. It had really affected them very profoundly. And that's why music can be very important. Um, and I, I, you know, when I'm working, I always play medieval choral music. I, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. And the earlier, the better. I find modern music very, very difficult to work to because it's too busy. It's too fast. It's too loud. But, but meditative music that allows you to partake in the divine, as in some of the choral hymns uh, from the medieval period, William Byrd, Thomas Tallis, Josquin de Prey, um, they really allow you to attain a quietness in mind over a period of time that can really, really help tremendously, not just in your work, but in your everyday life. Can, they can even heal you. Um, one of my favorite CDs is by John Rutter. It's called Fair is the Heaven. And it basically is a choir singing without instrumentation in the Lady Chapel of Ely Cathedral in Cambridgeshire, England. And it's a perfectly wonderful acoustical chamber. And the music of the voices really does get to you. It is very profound stuff. That's amazing. You know, if we if we look at, we were talking before about how we're changing our relative positioning in the galaxy, which changes the ley lines, which changes the orientation, like um, the Sphinx at one point when he was he she was built, was facing the constellation of Leo, which it doesn't anymore. What does that say for if we were to re-engage ourselves as these um, pieces of technology? If we were to re-engage and build new sacred sites based on what's going on today, what kind of power would that bring? Would it be any different? I think it would be slightly different, definitely. I think it would be something that would be of immense value to humanity as a whole. And I think we, it would be lovely for architects to be, under, to, to be able to understand and appreciate that aligning 
buildings and, and building them with love, care and attention in terms of the, the materials used uh, and, and, and exploring those materials more in terms of the wider relationship we have with the cosmos and with our own Earth. I think the, the effect could be a very, very profound one. I think it would um, make a lot more people a lot more happy. Um, and I, again, it's just expanding the idea of consciousness, the building as an expander of us and our experience, I think is an immensely important one and not enough modern architecture, it, it, to my mind, actually does that, if any. Bringing back the concept of sacred space and sanctuary, even in our homes, is going to bring a huge change, don't you think? I think it can only work for the better, to be honest Absolutely. with you. Absolutely. Well, we are, unfortunately, out of time. David, we could go on and on, and someday in the near future, we're going to have to. But unfortunately, I, we're out of time. I look forward to it, and thank you so much for having me you on your show. Oh, it's just been a pleasure, David. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Get, thank you. Our guest this hour has been David Elkington author of The Ancient Language of Sacred Sound, The Acoustic Science of the Divine. Find out more about David on his Facebook page, The Jordan Codices. Remember, our entire Information Fact past episode collection is available for listener download free of charge. Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka, Coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net, and the Exxon TV channel, www.exxontvchannel.com. Please join us next time as this mission continues. We're forever bringing the latest information, resources, and support to this wildly evolving world. <laughs>